listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Amen and good morning. It is so good to see all of you as we jump into the Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and flip open uh, to the book of Romans, uh, where we will be this morning, where we have been, and where we will continue to be for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad you are here this morning, and you, you picked a great week to show up. Uh, every Sunday is a great week to show up, uh, but um, uh, we are hitting a pivot point in the book of Romans that, um, to me, is just really exciting, and some good things are going to come out of this morning when we commit them to the Lord. Uh, so if I could uh, sum up so far uh, the argument the Apostle Paul has been making through the book of Romans and what we have been uh, covering these past several weeks as we've been diving into this book is in the simplest way possible, I, I would say it like this, what Paul has been establishing is that people, humanity, we have a problem and we can't fix it. And so he has been a bit exhaustive uh, as he has taken the past uh, couple of chapters to kind of diagnose all the different ways we might think that we can fix that problem, but the reality of the condition that humanity finds itself in. And so we've been kind of dwelling in that and sitting in that these past couple of weeks, uh, the state of humanity, the reality uh, of our condemnation before a holy God, that although we might think we have these aspects of our life that justify ourselves, the reality of the human condition is that we have a problem and we can't fix it. But what do we have? We have good news. Now, as a way of reminder, as we kicked off this sermon series, we talked about how Romans 1.16 is really uh, the anchor point of this entire book and what Paul is doing as he is writing this um, letter of instruction and this letter of understanding to explain the things of God to the church that is in Rome. And so um, for the month of February, that was our Bible memory verse. So uh, just to remind you where we kind of set our hearts to begin this study through the book of Romans, Romans 1.16 says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And verse 17 says this, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we do have this problem, and we've been talking so much about that problem, the condition humanity finds itself in, but Paul, as he was beginning this letter and going to expound on all these different points, he put that right at the beginning, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. And so if we have this problem that we can't fix, we are in need of a rescue. We are in need of a work to transpire in our life. And so Paul is saying that is what is taking place. The power of the gospel is salvation to those who believe. And so uh, he makes this phrase about how uh, the righteousness is revealed in that aspect of the gospel and that the righteous shall live by faith. And so he makes that statement. And then for the rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, and the first half of chapter three, he kind of takes this detour into the reality of the mess we find ourselves in. But as he has been expounding on that reality, both for people who are brought up outside of the religious context, but also for those who are brought up inside the religious context, that our morality will always fall short because it is based off comparison of other people, that we all have that problem and we can't fix it. 
But now that he has um, done his work to make sure people understand that they are in this position of condemnation, he's going to get back to this idea of God's righteousness. And so it's almost like this huge ellipsis in his writings. And so if you picked up on that in, um, uh, when we had our scripture reading just a little bit ago, that is the passage we will be going through this morning, the last half of chapter 3. And so it starts with that. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest outside of the law. And so he's getting back to this idea. If you can remember back to um, the first week we introduced the book of Romans, Pastor Charlie uh, talked about how we can look back through some of our collective church history, and there's some notable uh, cases and examples of how uh, this book, this letter by the Apostle Paul, really just had a profound impact on some of uh, the people God has used uh, through the history of the church in profound ways. And so if you know anything about uh, St. Augustine in North Africa, uh, that was part of his conversion story, that he had been pursuing all the things of the world, and then he was at this point of depression because everything was letting him down. And he heard this voice saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he just happened to find the scroll of Romans. And he took up the scroll of Romans. And through that, he encountered a living God and received salvation for his soul. And so there's been these notable times throughout history that God has really used the profoundness of what the Holy Spirit worked through the Apostle Paul for people to gain an understanding of what God is doing in the world around them. Uh, the same was true for Martin Luther. And I know a lot of y'all will have some familiarity with the Protestant Reformation um, back in uh, the 16th century. And so Martin Luther, uh, would, in his reflections of the time when God really called him to Jesus Christ, it was in the position he was already a Catholic monk. And he had um, um, uh, the unfortunate reality that he took the Bible very seriously. And so as he began to study the word of God and, and hold it up against the, the doctrines of the Catholic church, he uh, kind of received all this inner turmoil trying to reconcile the two. And so it was through his study of the book of Romans that really led to a lot of uh, the, the premises he put out that were included uh, when he wrote the 95 Theses and nailed it to the door of Wittenberg Castle, which is usually credited to kick off this Reformation and of which we would be a, a tradition, a church tradition that is an inheritor of those ideas of the Christian faith that come through the Bible. Uh, but Martin Luther, he recalled this period in his life when he began to study the book of Romans and how it impacted his heart. And he, he talks about this uh, kind of on the front end of a conversion experience, but then also on the back end. But this is what he says when he came to Romans 1, 16 and 17. He said, nevertheless, in spite of the ardor of my heart, I was hindered by the unique word in the first chapter, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and custom of the doctors, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning, as they put it, the formal or active righteousness according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus, a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, 
earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle, day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the righteous, the righteous shall live by faith. And so that's how Martin Luther took these words and, and took it seriously and was reading them and trying to uh, understand and seek to know the mind of God and how it applied to us as humanity. And he found himself at this place of just, um, I mean, in his own words, he said, you know, I hated this righteous God because how I was meant to understand it, that it was this activeness of us needing to um, partake in what God had commanded. And I knew I was a sinner condemned. Although he lived a very pious life by human standards, he still felt that turmoil within himself that he in no way measured up to a holy and perfect God. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Because there is this pivot point that happens in Paul's explanation of the gospel that he is not ashamed of because it is the power of salvation to those who believe. And so we've unpacked how we are in the state of condemnation, that our religious works are insufficient, our background is insufficient, our knowledge of the Bible is insufficient to save. But here's what he says. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's a profound statement. It changes completely the trajectory of what Paul's been talking about and the trajectory of humanity and the way we engage and try to bring ourselves to a holy God. And Paul likes to use this literary element, and you see this in the Bible a lot, that oftentimes we begin with the bad news of the state of humanity, like we know our place of condemnation. We know that when it comes to a holy God, we are separate and we can never measure up to it. And so this phrase is used a lot because we unpack this bad news, but then you get to the good news and there's always this pivot point with but, but God, but now. And so uh, there's the classic good pastor joke that every pastor at some point wants to write a book about the big buts of the Bible. And this is one of them. Romans 3 verse 21, what he's saying is, but now. And he begins to unpack the reality of what God is doing in the world around us. What does he say? He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So in their religious understanding, there was only one way to be considered righteous before God was to keep the precepts of the moral law that God had given through Moses to the people of Israel. But what he is saying is that righteousness is manifested. It is shown. It is revealed. It is being made known. And so as God has been unraveling the redemption story in the world, there is a salvation history that God has been revealing to his people. And so this idea of righteousness... It means morally perfect. It means a right standing with the God of the universe who set everything in motion and decided what was right and what was wrong. And so God is righteous. Everything about God is correctly moral. His perfection is shown in every moral action he has ever taken. And we know intrinsically as people that we need that. Because although at times we might to, um, play the comparison game and look around at other people and we can conclude or justify in our own mind like, okay, I might be a little bit better than them, but like Martin Luther, I think there's this intrinsic knowledge in all of us that we do fall short. Because if we didn't have that deep embedded in our hearts, we wouldn't have the compulsion to try to compare ourselves to others to begin with. And so we know that the righteousness of God is an attribution of his holiness and that we fall short of that. But here's what Paul is saying. 
all of the moral precepts that God had given to his people, that righteousness will be received outside of the keeping of those moral precepts. It is a marvelous unraveling of the gospel in showing the power of God to save, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But this is what he says. He says, how has it been manifested? He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how is the morally perfect God been showing his righteousness, righteousness and holiness by faith in Jesus Christ. So Martin Luther, he um, made this pivot point in his own life, and then he followed up that, that previous statement with this. This is what he said. Finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous person lives, namely faith, and that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered into paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies in other phrases, such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had now hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word, this passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. And this is what Paul is trying to unpack for us this morning, that although we uh, have such a tendency to view our lives as a balancing act of a scale, if I can just add a couple more things into the good column versus the bad column, that maybe God will look on me with favor, that maybe he will have mercy on me if I can be a slightly better person today than I was yesterday. And when we actually live that out to its fullest extent, the reality is we heap more condemnation upon ourselves because then we realize the limitations of our moral behavior and how we are imperfect people. But what Paul is unpacking is that the righteousness of God has been shown outside of that conundrum that humans fall into of I have to be a slightly better person to hope God might show mercy on me. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying the righteousness of God has been revealed. But he says this, he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and so that phrase, the law and the prophets, is utilized by the Jewish people, and what it refers to is what we would call the Old Testament. So that was the term they used, the law and the prophets. That's the Jewish Bible, or the Tanakh. It was the prophets and the writings. And so what Paul is saying right now, he's saying like, hey, all of the things that have come before us, that we are the inheritors of this lineage of what God had revealed about himself to his people, he said that is all bearing witness to this reality that I am now explaining through Jesus Christ. And so that is the story of the Old Testament. And so if you know some of that history and how the Old Testament unfolds the narrative of God's people is that God did choose this man named Abraham. He said, hey, you're gonna be my chosen people and I'm gonna lead and I'm gonna guide you and I'm gonna show you the better way to live, the way to live in a covenant relationship with me. And so I'm gonna reveal myself to these people. And so what Paul is saying is all of that 
is pointing to the reality that God's righteousness is going to be shown in another way other than keeping the rules. And so us as followers and believers in Jesus Christ, um, having received the Holy Scriptures, we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And so as we read the stories, we read the account of the law, we read how uh, God was redeeming his people over and over and over again, we read it through the lens of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. The law and the prophets bear witness to a righteousness that is needed apart from the law. And so even if you think about it, think about uh, the story of Exodus. So God has miraculously rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And this begins this period where God reveals his law to the Jewish people. So Moses, as he was leading the people of Israel, God began to call him out and give him these instructions like, hey, as my chosen people, this is how you are going to live. I'm going to expound for you all the different ways I want you to live in a covenant relationship with me. And that leads to the over 600 different commandments God gave to the people of Israel. And this was the way they were supposed to live. And God said, hey, if you keep these commandments, I'm going to be faithful. But what's the story of the Old Testament, that they were able to accomplish that? No, if you think about it, uh, the first 10 laws God gave Moses, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives the 10 commandments that's been memorialized in in film and different stories, we know this, and what do the chosen people that have just been rescued out of slavery immediately do as soon as Moses departs from the camp? We get the incident of the golden calf. The first law, the first rule, the first moral precept God gave his people was have no other gods before me. And within the span of a couple of hours of God revealing to him his moral righteous law, they've immediately already violated the commandments. And so for us to have the mindset that my ability to keep rules is going to be what makes me righteous before a holy God, it's a faulty reality in my life. And so already the Old Testament is pointing to the insufficiency of people and the need for God to intervene on our behalf. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And so you continue to get these, these pictures and these realities of what God was doing and revealing about himself all through the stories of Scripture, pointing ahead to this work that God was going to do through Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets bear witness to the reality that the righteousness of God will be revealed in Jesus. And so I think about the story of Abraham who was said to be a righteous man, and and God told him, hey, take your son, Isaac, the son that you love, and I want you to take him, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And as Abraham was taking Isaac, Isaac said, "Uh, my father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice. And when he was willing to completely trust God, even with the, the furthering of his family, what happens in that moment before Abraham actually sacrifices Isaac, God stops him and he provides a ram and a sacrifice is made that God provided so that uh, the human family of Abraham wouldn't have to incur that payment on his behalf. I think about the story of Joseph, who was incredibly wronged and sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And this moment comes of reconciliation where his brothers are brought before him and he's in this position of power and they think he's going to unleash retribution on them. And Joseph makes this statement that is a profound foreshadowing of the cross. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. We read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament because the law and the prophets bear witness that the righteousness of God will be revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
I've been doing the year-long Bible reading plan, so I, I finally made it through Leviticus, um, and I'm uh, pretty deep into numbers at this point. How, how many of y'all are reading the Bible in a year? Who's still on track? Great job, guys. Keep it up. Keep it up. But I've just been reading through all the Levitical laws. God established this idea of sacrifice as a payment for sin. And he gave all these prescriptions. And part of the aspect of that was uh, every time there was a, an animal sacrifice to uh, be an atonement for sin, it was always stated that the, the animal had to be without blemish, that there needed to be this idea of a perfect sacrifice. And so over and over again, it's pointing to this reality that people are insufficient and so God is going to have to make a way for us to receive his righteousness. And so what does Paul say in verse 23 and 24? It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now we do need to do a little bit of work because uh, Paul begins to utilize some language that might have some familiarity for us if we have grown up in the Christian setting and with the Christian teachings, but is a good reminder to us to, um, to unpack what he's actually talking about. And so uh, this idea of righteousness we've already touched on is being morally perfect. And so God's righteousness is apparent because he is a holy God. And so we need to become righteous so that we can have union with the holy God. And so when Paul uses this word justified, we use this in this religious context now, and it means the act of being made righteous. And so when we are justified, we are made morally perfect by God. So he utilizes that word. And then he also uh, uses the word grace, um, which maybe we have some familiarity with. We utilize it a lot within this setting, but the, the grace of God literally means the eternal favor of the Father. And so like, it is this idea of a parent who loves their child, and so uh, that child has the favor of their parent, and so the grace of God is receiving the favor of the Father, not because of merit or action, but because you belong to the Father, the grace of God. And so we are justified by his grace, it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this term redemption, what it really evokes going back all the way to the Old Testament is the idea of slavery. It evokes this image of somebody who is in bondage and the only way for them to get out of that position of slavery or bondage is for someone to purchase them out of that. That is redemption and that is the term we utilize to talk about the scope of the biblical narrative. It is God's story of purchasing back his creation from the power of sin and the brokenness that has infused our world. And so that's what Paul is talking about, that we are justified we are made morally perfect. We are made righteous by the favor of the Father, by his grace as a gift. This is what he says, through the redemption, through the purchase that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So let's just remind our hearts, if I want to give a gift to someone, it is contingent on me to go and purchase it. I have to buy that gift. 
And then for this interaction to take place, if I want to offer something to somebody else, they have to receive it. And so Paul begins to unpack a very profound spiritual reality for us that I don't want us to miss. This is what he is saying. Grace, the favor of the Father, is a gift, and it has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And this is what it says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this is another word we have utilized within the Christian setting, but um, it wasn't necessarily originally only held to by the Christian teachings. And so this term propitiation was utilized in the Greek-speaking culture in which Paul was writing. And so they had an idea of more of a polytheistic idea of God, that there were all these different gods that, you know, we learn about in, you know, Western Civ, the Greek pantheon. And so they had all these different temples to different gods. There was the God of the harvest, the God of the rain, God of love, all these different things. And so if something went wrong in your life, there was this idea intrinsic uh, in the culture at the time that you needed to go and make an offering to appease whatever God you had offended. And so propitiation was a term utilized for that payment of appeasement. And so whatever God you thought you offended, whatever was going wrong in your life, you could go to that God's temple and you could offer something, maybe some money, maybe a, a physical good like a grain offering or something to that effect, and you could go and make a propitiation for whatever you had done wrong to hopefully appease that God. And so what Paul is laying out for us right here is that to receive the gift of the favor of the Father that has been purchased, that favor, that gift that we need to receive, it has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ as a propitiation, as a payment to appease God. Now, this is important for us because the word Paul uses right here in the Greek is this word hilasterion, and it's only used two times in all of the New Testament. But at the time, the Jewish people would have actually been reading the Old Testament in Greek. If you've ever heard this term, the Septuagint, it's because what had transpired through the course of the Jewish history is that they had been a, a conquered people. Israel had not been a nation state for a long time. And at one point, um, um, they had gathered all these Jewish scholars to update their holy scriptures. And so they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And so that's what the Apostle Paul would have grown up reading. And so this word, although it is a Greek word, it's only twice used in the New Testament. It's used dozens of times in the Greek Old Testament. So in the New Testament, it's here in Romans, and we translate it as propitiation, this payment, this offering to appease. The other time it's used in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 9, and it's translated different. So if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, out of all of the New Testament, it has the most connection to the Old Testament. It is written for the Jewish audience to explain how all of these aspects of the Old Testament were to bear witness to Jesus Christ, how the law and the prophets bear witness to what God is doing. So Hebrews has all of this terminology that Jewish people would have resonated with because it comes out of their religious background and heritage. So in Hebrews chapter 9, this Greek word hilasterion is actually translated as mercy seat. Because for the people reading that, that would have immediately taken them back to the imagery of the Old Testament. And so talking about the Levitical law, if you've been reading through that, when God called out his people and set up a, hey, this is how I want you to engage with me as my chosen people and you honoring me as God, they set up the tabernacle. And so God gave them all this instruction like, hey, this is where my presence is going to be. And so as my created people, if you want to be in the presence of God, this is how I want you to do it. 
And so within the tabernacle, there was this area called the Holy of Holies. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, that area between the two angels was called the mercy seat. And as God explained to his people what he wanted them to do in order to come into this right relationship with him was all these prescriptions about the sacrifice that needed to be made and blood was going to be shed and it was going to be spilt on the mercy seat to make an atonement, to make an offering to appease God because of the ugliness of our sin. So in Hebrews 9, the same word that Paul is using right here is payment, a payment of appeasement, he connects to this Old Testament idea. Now, the time this word is used the most in the Old Testament is in Leviticus 16, as God explains to the people of Israel how he wants them to recognize this significant festival that they call the Day of Atonement. It's what Jewish people still recognize in Yom Kippur. And so what he said, he said, one day a year is going to be the time that you actually get to be in my full presence. So this idea of the Holy of Holies, one day a year, the high priest the one person who had been ritually purified the most that God was going to look on pleasingly, he would perform all of these sacrifices so that he could go into the holy of holies and then he could spill blood on the mercy seat. And so what God said, like, hey, because of the sins of the entire people, this is what I want you to do. And if you perform this sacrifice, I will look over your sins for that year. And if you know anything about the Day of Atonement, how it ends is that they perform these sacrifices. Um, The high priest is able to go in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God to perform these sacrifices on behalf of the people. And then they take a goat. They take a goat, and the people lay their hands on this goat. And um, the symbolism of that is God is saying that it's like you taking your sin and placing it on something else. And so the people lay their hands on this goat, and then they send this goat off into the wilderness to die. And it's symbolism of God saying like, hey, I have transferred your sins over to this sacrifice, and now that your sins are being carried away. It's where we get the term scapegoat, because they would literally send this goat with the representation of their sins off into the wilderness. And so what Paul is saying right here that all of that formality, all of that symbolism, all of that religious understanding that the payment I deserve to pay because of the sins I have committed against a holy God, and all of this time in the Old Testament when I brought you through these sacrificial rituals, all of that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That he has now become the propitiation. So to receive the gift of the favor of the Father To be in a position where I would be worthy to receive that, I could never make that payment myself. And so Jesus is not a payment for sin, Jesus is the payment for sin. And it's incredible what the New Testament authors actually latched onto, that our our righteousness is not connected to all these moral deeds, that if I can keep all the checklists or not, but it is completely connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, he continues to unpack this idea. So in Hebrews 9, he translates that word, the mercy seat. Uh, But in Hebrews 13, he connects it to this day of atonement because this goat was sent away from the people. And so to complete all of the ritual on the day of atonement, the last thing that you would do after after the sacrifices, after they take the goat off into the wilderness, they would have to clean themselves up again because there was this blood sacrifice that had taken place. So to become um, back into the presence of God and to be cleared of your transgressions for that year, the final act you had to do was to clean yourself up. 
And that's how we feel so often coming into a religious setting, like, hey, if I need to be right before God, I need to do something to clean myself up to um, these external moral actions. I need that in my life so that God would look pleasingly on me. But in Hebrews 13, that author makes this profound statement because he talks about Jesus being our sacrifice that took our sins and he uses the term outside of the camp. And what he says now about our righteousness being shown outside the law, he doesn't say anything about cleaning yourselves up. He says this. He says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he took on my behalf. And so the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And how do we understand, live this out, accept it into our lives? Through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so we need to ask ourselves some of the questions that Paul addresses. If Jesus is the propitiation, not a payment for sin, but the payment for sin, that when Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, we have received the righteousness of God by faith. And then you know what took place in that act of Jesus on the cross, the temple that was there in Jerusalem, and they still had this area called the Holy of Holies that only one day a year they were able to go into. The separation that kept people out from the holiness of God was called the shroud. It was a veil. It was this woven garment that was feet thick. It said there was an earthquake that took place and the veil was torn. And so although it probably caused a lot of heartache for the Jewish people, what it meant for the rest of the world is that the favor and the acceptance and the position of the Father was available to us because the payment has been made. That all of us have incurred a debt through our actions and through our bent towards sin. And for us to live in the right relationship with God that we were designed to have, there was only one way that could be made possible. Somebody else had to pay our debt. It was the only means available for us to have a right relationship with God. And this is what Paul is saying. If you look right towards the end of, of verse 25, it says this. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Paul utilizes this other legal term. And so as we've laid out, Paul is in his defense of the gospel through the book of Romans. He's trying to accomplish several things. One is clarity. He's trying to clarify what the gospel is, what the good news of Jesus is. Another is unity in the church. He's trying to unite the different factions because people are coming to Jesus from different backgrounds. But then the third thing was to prove that God has been consistent, fair, and just throughout the course of history. And so what Paul is saying right now is that through all of those years of the Old Testament, all of that history of people sinning against God and then having to perform the ritual sacrifices, what Paul is attaching to it is this legal idea of a forbearance. It's still something we use a little bit today, usually in terms of a loan. And so if you have incurred a debt and it is uh, contingent on you to pay that debt off, if you are hitting that time allowance that you are supposed to pay that debt, you can sometimes receive a forbearance, which means not that that debt has been paid for, but you have a little bit more time until that bill comes due. And so what Paul is saying is all that the people have come before Jesus, God in his mercy took that as a forbearance until the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so how can we accept this incredible gift of the favor of the Father purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ? How do we receive that gift? By faith. 
And this is what he's saying. Verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how can we enter in to this forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ? It is by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul uses this term also. He says it becomes a law of faith. So how can we know we are actually doing what is right in the eyes of God? We proceed by faith. It was making me reflect this week on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Wonderful movie. And so right at the very end when they're trying to find the Holy Grail, uh, there's all these clues as to how they can actually get to uh, this divine reality uh, at, at the end of their journey. And so Indy's having to figure out uh, this tunnel that's all booby-trapped with different things. Uh, but the final step to get to the divine reality that's going to save his life and the life of his father is what's called the leap of faith. And so he's going through this tunnel. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, he's going through this tunnel, and he gets to this point where the tunnel runs out, and it's this massive cliff, and there's this opening on the other side that is just impossibly far. And so the only clue he has is that it's a leap of faith. And so he comes up to this, and he goes, well, this is impossible for me to jump over. But he knows his dad's dying. He knows there's all these pressing issues, and so he's not sure what to do. But all he has is this clue that you just got to step out and go for it. And so he finally, you know, works up the nerve and he steps and you think he's going to fall. And then it reveals that there's this pathway that he can just walk over. So it wasn't in his ability to leap this canyon. It was in his ability to just trust and take a step of faith. And so that's what Paul is saying we do in regards to God. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come back in the camp. We place our complete hope, complete trust, complete belief in Jesus Christ. Now, this word faith, I've always found interesting because we use it a lot, but sometimes it's actually hard to convey what it means because we, like, we know it's like believing, but kind of just a little bit stronger. And so a belief sometimes is not even a strong enough word because what it says about the demons is the demons believe in God. But what it says about us is that we need faith to receive this gift of grace, the eternal favor of the Father. And so the only way I've been able to wrap my mind around this eye of faith within the scriptures is it is belief, but it is plus action. And so it is belief and an intellectual assent, a heart assent to these things I believe are true, but the way it actually becomes faith in my life is when I actually take an action on it. It's like the idea of when uh, Peter sees Jesus out on the waves. And Peter, Jesus says, come out to me. If Peter had only said like, you know what, I believe I could, Lord, it probably would not have been a result of faith. But what does he do? He gets out of the boat. And now where the grace of God comes in is because we know that story that Peter only takes a couple of steps and he falls under, but Jesus picks him up. But this idea of faith is that we are actually to step out and completely place our trust, our hope, our belief that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to cover my sins and to bring me into right, right standing with God. That I am not placing my trust in any other means to make myself justified before a holy God other than the sacrifice of Jesus. So if anything else creeps into my life, I am nullifying the fact that he paid it in full on my behalf. So the rule of my life now, the law that I am supposed to abide by is trust Jesus. It reminds me of Jesus' own words that if we come to him when we are weary and heavy laden, he'll give us rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
and I can place all sorts of other means on my life that I have to be good enough in order to earn God's favor, but on the flip side of that is Jesus offering me his way, his life. His burden is easy, his yoke is light. I now live by a guiding principle, a faith in him. I wanna be like Peter who gets out of the boat. And this is what Paul says about our ideas of salvation in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified, made righteous, made morally perfect by faith apart from works of the law. One of the realities that came into our Christian understanding through the Protestant Reformation is this idea of the five solas, which is a uh, Latin term for alone. And so one of the things we would hold to is sola fide. It is faith alone that we are justified by and is a marker of our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are not trusting any other means other than Jesus alone. And then this is where Paul concludes this chapter. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And here's the reality that we're going to have to wrestle with. There are not two different gods, one of the Old Testament and one of the New Testament. And so what Paul is contending against is that God has changed over time. He's saying it's, it's not so. He's saying all of the law, all of the prophets is pointing to this reality that we were never going to be able to be righteous on our own by works of the law. This is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount when, he, when people ask him and he comes and he says, I have not come to overthrow the law. I've not come to overturn it. He's like, it's not passing away, but it has been fulfilled in him. So all of those moral precepts that God had put in place were to reveal to us our need in a salvation that was greater than my own means and it all points to Jesus Christ. And so do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's always been faith. That's what we're gonna get into next week as Paul uh, uh, uses this story of Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, and he's gonna look back into their scriptures, into the law and the prophets, and to show that his righteousness that God said that he had was a result of faith. It was a result of this belief plus action in trusting in who God was, in trusting in the sacrifice that was going to come in Jesus Christ. And so I think for us, as we uh, absorb all of this uh, rich history, all these rich teachings of Paul, I think where it leaves us this morning, to me, it is so often that I slip into the idea of the scale. That if I can just do enough good, God might be pleased with me. So what I, I wanted this morning, I actually looked on Amazon, I was trying to find like one of those old school scales, I was going to do something dramatic like set up and kick it down, uh, but I couldn't find it on Amazon, because that's what I, what I would love to leave you with is this reality that whatever weight you are carrying, that your works are somehow insufficient, that part is true. But what the gospel reveals to us is that Jesus is enough, that we don't have to try to manufacture some other moral standing with God that he lived the life that I couldn't and he paid the debt that I would in no way be ever to, able to overcome so that I could have a right relationship with God. And so here's the application I do want to leave you with. 
Because if we think about the, the salvation work of God and what is offered to us in Jesus Christ, there should be this result in my life. And I think one of the profound elements of recognition of what Jesus has done on my behalf is joy. So I think about what uh, the, uh, King David said in Psalm 51, uh, which is a psalm of confession when he recognizes what he has done uh, in the instance with Bathsheba. And so one of the verses in Psalm 51 that I just love, he says, restore the joy of my salvation. Now, if we are going through life and we are trusting in ourselves to somehow be moral enough before a holy God, the result is going to be a lot of um, teeth gritting and nail biting and anxiety inducing because we feel like we are in this position where we have to control all of the outcomes of our life. But that's not the story of the Bible. And so if I could put it just in a, in a very simple terms that uh, is not going to do justice to what Jesus has done on our behalf. Have any of y'all ever been in a drive-thru and you get up to, you have placed your order, you know what you owe, and you get up to the window and they say, hey, that car in front of you just paid for, for your meal. Has, anybody, has that ever happened? Has anybody done that for anybody else? Yes, yeah, happened like twice in my life. And you know, you never know who did it. But I, I've realized like one of the results, and it's such, a, it's such a simple thing. It's such a simple thing. But one of the results is it just makes my day. You know, regardless, the two times I can think of this happening, you know, I don't really remember what was transpiring in my life, but I knew, like, okay, you know, I want this Starbucks order, I want this fast food, whatever it is, and I got up, and I knew, like, I rightfully owed for whatever I was about to receive, but somebody else paid for it for me. And it just, you know, just kind of gave me a good feeling for the rest of the day. How much more should it anchor our lives in the joy of the Father when we recognize the debt that we have owed to a holy God and the fact that we are never going to have to repay it because it's already been paid? How much more should our lives be marked by joy and satisfaction and peace because of what Jesus has done on my behalf? And so when our lives are not marked by that, there might be something that's off in my heart, in my gauge of this God and how he looks at me and if I am still trying to perform good enough so that he would look on me with kindness when we don't recognize that the payment has been made. My debt's over, it's canceled, it's done with for now and for the rest of my life. The sins I have committed were taken by Jesus on the cross so that he could be both just and justifier, that he could both be a holy God but also accept me into his family. He poured out all of the payment on Jesus Christ so that all I have to do is take a step of faith and trust him. And the rest is in the hands of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, take joy. Your debt has been paid. You are looked on with the eternal favor of the Father because of the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we turn to you. It is so easy for us to begin to let other things creep into our hearts and minds other than an acceptance of your grace in our life that was purchased by Jesus' blood. I thank you that um, you took the payment of my sin on your own body so that we could be brought into right relationship with you. God, help us to grow in that truth and in that understanding so that we would better worship and that we would better trust you.
pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.